Welcome to Beyond the Fail, the podcast where we talk to leaders and entrepreneurs about their biggest business failures. We'll deep dive into how they overcame these setbacks, the lessons they learned from them, all to help you gain valuable insights. Failure is an essential part of the business journey, as well as being the key to success. So we're here to show you how to thrive from it. Rachel Welbelove has 30 years experience in business, including working in startups and multinationals such as British Airways and Deutsche Bank. She is currently a property investor and now lives in Bahrain. She has 17 years experience in running her own businesses, which include construction and logistics. Today, Rachel talks about buying a business which she quickly found out had already run out of cash and how failure is never the option for her. This is Beyond the Fail with Rachel Welbelove. Rachel, great to have you on today. This is um, kind of been a long time coming, so super excited to have you here. How are you, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Yes, I'm good. Thank you very much. Um, it's the evening here in Bahrain. So what time are we? Yes, six o'clock here in Bahrain. So thank you for giving up your evening to speak to me. I really appreciate it. So where did it kind of all start for you in kind of your career? I know you obviously had a, a varied kind of career, but where did it all kind of begin? Um, blimey, it probably started when I was a child. So my late father ran his own business. Um, so all the guys would come into the house in the morning. My sister and I would be getting ready for school. Mum would be sort of making tea and coffee and bacon sandwiches. So I suppose that was my first introduction to the world of business. And then following on from that, like most people, so I left school in 1986. And back then, really, it was just a very very bright top percentage of children that went to uni and I if I'm honest didn't work very hard at school certainly didn't work as hard as I should have done and the careers advice that I got was go and work for a big company and get lots of training that was it and that's pretty much what what I did I, I went and worked for a big company I worked for British Airways initially as soon as I left school and I worked for them for 12 years and got loads of training they were a fantastic company to work for they were way ahead of their time in a lot of the things that they were doing by way of training customer service um, project management development and those sorts of things so I pretty much cut my my teeth at BA Um, and then I was approaching 30 one of those sort of milestone birthdays and I've been working for them for 12 years by then I was a Prince 2 qualified project manager I'd done my APM qualifications and I was at one of those crossroads where I either stayed with British Airways and a lot of people did it was very much a job for life it was it was its own sort of microcosm really I think at the time it had maybe 25,000 employees this is this back in the 90s and I was, I was sort of with this pondering in my mind, do I stay or can I, can I cut it in the real world? That's how I saw it then. And I made the decision to leave. And then I went to work for a really small startup company, which was a really 
interesting business, tons of experience. I had a I had a boss who used to mark my work out of ten in red pen. That's cool. Um, no, this was in a business. I was thirty. I was running a project team. I was the fourth employee, and he would yeah score my work out of ten. So that was that was fun. And then from there, I went and did various things. I then moved on to work in the the sort of corporate world of investment banking, which was which was really interesting. I was running quite a large graduate program, and then my father actually became very ill and had a heart attack. And at that point, I said to him, "Look, I'll come and help you. I'll I'll give up what I'm doing, give up my career." I'll come and run your company for you. But if we don't get on, and there was a strong possibility that that might happen, I said, I'll find somebody that can look after your company for you. You know, at that point, he still had a typewriter, secretary he'd had for 25 years. And he, he couldn't run the business. So I said, look, I'll come and help. And that was my first formal introduction to running a business, family business, no less. And then I did that for six years and that has sort of led on, if you like, to probably, I would say, me either being involved or owning or running businesses for probably nearly 18 years now. So yeah, I'm older than I look, I hope. Oh no, younger than I look. <laughs> Do you think the career advisor was, was, that, was that, that was good advice? For me, yes. I think it was. And in the context of sort of 1980s, 1986, you know, there, there was a lot of people going off to be barristers, solicitors, teachers, going to uni where you needed to have a degree to work in that field, social work, whatever it was. But there was a lot of people who, like me, probably didn't work as hard as I should, um, who who had to go into employment and and I think yeah working for a big company was a really really good tip and it provided me with absolutely invaluable skills and foundations for now running my own businesses and um yeah massive grounding th things that I did then that I still remember now really yeah yeah I mean so this is essentially a business education isn't it Working for a big company, I, I think, is a very good grounding. Um, and like I said, at 30, it was one of those, can I cut it in the real world in my in my head? That's what I was thinking. Because BA certainly had created an environment that was like its own small town. You know, we had a, we had a courtyard, our buildings had... Um, Waterside, which was the, one of the brand new buildings at the time, it had a, a, it was based on a courtyard and a sort of plaza that you might find in Europe, and it had you know soft seating and it created that environment. So, yeah, for me, it was it was definitely the right choice. Yeah. Did your parents support that, or was they did they want you to, you know? follow some of their paths and be more kind of entrepreneurial well my parents without doubt have 100 percent supported everything and anything that i've ever chosen to do and to be fair i wasn't the easiest of children growing up 
I was pretty headstrong. Um, I had gone to do my A-levels in economics and English and I started doing that and I can quite clearly remember having a conversation around the dinner table and I said, I'm, I'm going to drop out of my A-levels. And my, I'm trying to remember my dad's exact words. I, it was along the lines of, oh, okay, Rachel, you just do whatever makes you happy. And that's, wow. yeah, that was it. So no, I don't think there was any expectations on me to follow in my, in my dad's footsteps then. My mum um, was a homemaker. She'd, um, have since my sister and I were born, she'd taken care of the home. So very traditional family. So no, I don't think there was any expectation as it was. I obviously did go to work for him for six years and, um, that worked, that works that worked really, really well. Um, surprisingly, I think, and that me coming into the business at that point, one of the transitions that were going on, we did a lot of work in local authority for social housing. We were doing large tenders for people like Mansell, Balfour Beatty, Mears. Um, and I was able to bring a lot of experience that, that basically my dad and his secretary didn't have. So the business went through this sort of transition um, with me coming. And within the first year, I had increased their profits by 100%. And then subsequently, my sister joined the business and my auntie joined the business. So it became very much a, a growing family business and it was my first sort of formal introduction to to running a business and all the all the facets that go with that around I was doing the health and safety we were doing risk assessments method statements we were doing tenders I was dealing with all the wages all the, all the sort of staff issues equipment stock managing jobs so it was it was you know, as with a small business, as you know, when you're growing a business, you have so many different things to do. So um, I never felt any pressure to to do anything. I think I was incredibly lucky. What do you think would have happened to the business if you hadn't taken over? Take Not taking over was not an option. Uh, it was my family. My dad had had a serious heart attack and I knew that I had to give up my career and, and go and support him and um it was it was never an option not to do it did it feel like a step down at all i mean because it sounds like you the way you just put it sort of made it sound a bit like an obligation was it or did you resent it at the time no 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 not an obligation at all um it just felt like a natural thing to do um obviously my father my who subsequently passed away but my late father had had two heart attacks in quick succession um and he was very lucky to be alive at that at that point to be, to be fair um he he had actually passed away and they, they managed to bring him back to life so no I didn't I saw it I think in some ways I saw it as an opportunity because I hadn't gone straight into the business from school I, I think I, I think also that in some respects, you don't want to be the daughter or the son of the boss without sort of cutting your teeth elsewhere and having some sort of credibility in your own right. I think if I'd 
gone straight out of school and gone straight to work for my dad, I would have always been the boss's daughter. But as it was, I came to the business with, well, a, a, a very good track record in my, in my own right. I've been working since I was sort of 16, 17. And I think that was in 2005. So um, at that stage, I was running, you know, large programs in an investment bank, global programs. And, um, but it never, no, it never felt like that. It was, it was, it was an, it was an interesting experience and a massive grounding for what I then subsequently went on to do. But it didn't feel like a step down considering you went from global investment banking and running, you know, I'm, I'm assuming kind of large teams to, you know, relatively speaking, comparatively speaking, a smaller, you know, what, just SME, like size? Yes. Yeah. SME. I think we had, I think we had about 12 guys at that point. Um, no, I think that sometimes there's a perception of the corporate world being very glamorous and high flying. And without doubt, you've obviously got career prospects. You can earn significant sums of money, but, but what comes with that is also this, I suppose, an element of routine. So in a large corporate that you're, you're doing the same, roughly the same thing sort of over and over and over and over and over. And especially if you're running a global program, you've, you're doing sort of something that's semi-repetitive over a time scale. So in fact, moving to a smaller company where you didn't do the same thing every day was actually more, more interesting. And you could see the results of your efforts more you know, on a, on a daily basis. So I think it was a more rewarding job, if I'm honest, a more rewarding role, really. And I learned a significant amount from my late father. What did you learn? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, I would say some of my main learnings would be being deadly honest, being really, really honest. Um, and if you do something for somebody and you're very genuine with people and, and genuine in what you do, you will get that paid back tenfold. So that's probably one of the things I can remember as a small child, um, my dad was selling a van. I was probably about, I think I was about 12, maybe. Anyway, I was selling a van and somebody came around to buy it. So my dad took me out and this chap, I can't remember what it was for, but let's just assume it was for sale for 200 pounds. It was a little Ford, little Ford van. And this guy offered, you know, 150. And it, 200 pounds was already a good price for the van. And this guy wouldn't budge at 100. He said, I'm, I'm not, you know, I won't have it 150 sort of thing. And um, my dad said, look, it's, it's for sale for 200 pounds. If, if you want it, you, you can have it, but that's what it's worth. And I know it's back and forth and back and forth. And in, in the end, my dad said, well, I'm not, I'm not going to sell it then, mate. Okay. And we, we obviously walked off back in. And I can remember then my dad saying, you know, if, if you believe that that's what it's worth, don't don't sell it for less. I suppose it's a bit like don't split the difference. You know, it's that 
and and so that's just one one example from my childhood and there were lots of uh learning experiences like that as I was growing up so yeah that's just one so it sounds like your your see, dad was a um a kind of a big a big influence on your your life and um would you, would you say he was sort of an early mentor yes but I probably didn't I probably didn't recognize it as such you know obviously the word mentor now is used quite a lot but I I probably didn't recognize it like that then no but yeah I would say definitely I'm fascinated as well by how that transition worked from you going from corporate life and then coming into running his business obviously he was probably feeling a little bit wounded obviously he just had you know a massive disruptive health scare. Uh, yeah. but then he's got his young daughter coming in taking over his business how did that transition work was there tension <laughs> surprisingly not actually um i'd love to be able to say yeah there was loads but there wasn't um i I think he recognised that there was a need for me or somebody like me at that point in time, not just because of, of his health issues at the time, but because of the changes that were going on in the wider business. So he'd done a lot of work over the years with local authorities, so different councils, and had, had created a very successful business off of the back of that. He'd worked with the Ministry of Defence, you know, and we we've done lots of different things over the years. Was this always but, house building, or was it you know with those big projects that you mentioned, MOD and things? Was that a lot of it was? It was all well, gosh, I mean, tons of stuff. But he predominantly, I think, in the latter year when he started out in business, he did a lot of everything. So he did roofing, he did building extensions, he did he refurbishes the first house that my mum and dad could buy. He refurbished that from the bottom to the roof stripped the whole thing out and did the whole thing by hand himself that was our first home so but as time went on that that sort of narrowed down to to having i suppose a more of a funnel into kitchens bathrooms disabled adaptations we were effectively taking rundown properties within the local authority taking them back to brick and refurbish them and that ranged from completely back to brick new roof damp proof, ripping out floors, the you know, electrics, heating systems, the whole thing to handing it back to the council. But then other things we would do would be, for example, um, disabled adaptations. So we might be undertaking, let's say, 300 disabled adaptations for a local authority for people who desperately needed those facilities in their, in their local authority homes. So yeah, and often that was elderly people or people with disabilities. So we, we did all of that. But by the time I became involved in the business, we were predominantly doing that work. For the Ministry of Defence, I think he'd done similar types of works. He'd done, back in the day, sort of asbestos removals, garages, roofing, um, everything, really, I would say. At some point, he'd, he'd done everything. He'd built, there was a, a big uh, cemetery in Woking, and he'd built or rebuilt all of the wall. It's one of the largest cemeteries in Woking. 
So that was one of the things that he did. So yeah, lots of different stuff. But by then it was, it had become a lot more structured in the requirements that were placed upon us as a company. We were having a lot more, um, there's a lot more emphasis on health and safety. So we worked very closely with Balfour Beatty and I was involved in putting something in place called Zero Harm, which was one of their initiatives. So, so I was presenting with them and running their course. And then I was training our guys on that initiative and I was doing that training for the local authority. So there was lots of things that naturally had evolved. And I think from his point of view, he knew that I could do that and, and the business could continue to move forward. So, yeah, but I, I can't give you loads of horror stories. We did have a little um, tip. But if he was talking a lot and I, I put, if we were in a meeting and I put my pen down on the table, it meant that he had to stop talking. <laughs> that could get confusing, like, though. It was like, no, I just had to hold my pen the entire time. But that was like code language that if I put my pen down, he had to be quiet. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds like you added a lot of value to that business and it sounds like you you kind of professionalized it, you know, and and, and, and maybe... I was going to say corporatized. I don't even know if that's a word, but you get what I'm saying. You you enabled that business to start operating on a kind of different level in a different sphere. Um, I mean, it was it was obviously running very well up until that point, and it was it was meeting all of its obligations. I think it's like any business; it goes through different phases. So I think I think businesses naturally have their own cycle that that develops over time so you might start off with a business that for example just did decorating and then you expand the business and it's decorating and then it's plastering or so I think it was just a natural evolution in in that in that business at that time it just happened to be when it was um and I think also like now there'll be greater requirements placed on if you if you're going to go and tender for work with a local authority you need certain criteria just to even be able to tender so we were members of Chaz. we we had our all of our guys had their construction cis cards i think at the time we were registered for all of our electrics yeah all of that was already in place it was just sort of pulling that pulling what the company already had together in a way that it could be shown to somebody else if you like and I think that's that's part of what I did I just I pulled all these little bits that were already working and just put them into a nice powerpoint presentation that's that's probably what I think I did yeah, that, that sounds uh more you know potentially uh, undervaluing what you did but um, <laughs> and making it more sounds more simple did you have any fears or sort of self-doubts about taking over and going into that kind of leadership position no no, I don't think I did. Um, I'd always, in my throughout my career, from from when I left school to 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 well now I suppose, I'd always worked in roles that weren't maybe weren't easy roles. So I, you know, for example, I worked for a very small startup company where my boss used to mark my work in red and give me scores out of ten. I was the fourth person in that company. It was a startup company and we were working with my role was to bring in, basically set up a project management team. So all my 
colleagues, my three colleagues at the time were men. I was the only woman. It was my first job outside of British Airways. And I got that company set up. We got our ISO accreditation for project management. So I've always been in roles that I think required a certain amount of tenacity to to sort of get on with it, sort of mindset. Um, you know, try try to find ways and solutions to 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 improve things. I think that's probably part of what I've always done is I've always worked in roles where I could see an improvement or a a change or a goal. So, no, I think it was daunting in that ultimately I was a girl. I wasn't, yeah, I was 30, 35, I was 35. Um, and the team, some of the older members of the team had been very used to doing things the way that they had done them. And you'd certainly get the issues of, well, I've always done it like this. You know, I've, I've always done it that way. What's the, what's the problem? I don't, I don't see what the problem is. Well, the problem is the health and safety requirement is to do it this way because this is what it says. So I had some interesting experiences with some of the chaps that, that work there, um, but I'm sure we'll come on to interesting work experiences somewhere a bit further down the line. And what gave you, you you know, you you talked about having, obviously, you you call it tenacity. I would also say it's sort of resilience or confidence to, you know, be attracted to firstly, but then cope with difficult roles. Where did that kind of come from? Gosh. That's, that's a really difficult question to answer, actually, Jeremy. Um, where did that confidence come from? I'm I'm not sure. I think I was always always had a strong opinion. I, I could always hold my own in a debate, and I ha- I was quite headstrong as a as a teenager, and I always had quite a strong opinion on things. So I think looking back, I wasn't really phased by things, and sort of in the eighties. Well, certainly in the late eighties, yeah, you had a lot of women still couldn't get into some of the main roles. You like if you were an airline pilot or being a barrister, the police were still. You still had a lot of uh, of you know, very few women in the police still in in the eighties and nineties. So, I was never sort of put off by that, and I always felt that if you set your mind to something, you can you can achieve it. You could you can do it. So I just. I never really, I never consciously thought about it as being, I was super confident or I was um, super skilled even. I never thought of it like that. I just thought, well, if I work hard and I apply myself, then I'll I'll do all right. I don't, I don't see it as anything other than that, if I'm entirely honest. And I, I find that question really difficult to answer because I'm not sure it's one thing. I'm afraid. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it sounds like also, uh, you know, having a a kind of entrepreneur in the family is, you know, sort of self-made man, if you want to put it like that. That probably helped with that, I'm imagining, that work ethic. Did that rub off on you? 
Yes, without doubt. I mean, my father, my late father had a an exceptionally strong work ethic. Um, and I, yeah, he worked, I would say, probably every day of his life, if I'm honest. He didn't have family holidays with us. Um, you know, when, when my mum and my sister and I went on holiday with my auntie and my cousins, my dad didn't come. He was working. So work he's he I and I can quite clearly remember him saying that he never considered what he did was work because he absolutely loved what he did every single day so I don't think if you enjoy what you do it isn't working I I just think having I and I always felt that you know and I grew up I grew up in in the Thatcher era so again we had our first female president female prime minister so and she if forget you know, irrespective of her politics, from a from a, a girl's point of view, she she was the most important person in the country. So I just didn't think that there was anything you couldn't do by being a girl, really. So, kind of moving away from, you know, you running your your dad's business, <laughs> what what was that sort of defining moment? where something went you know badly wrong in a, in a business that you know you have been running um well I mean, is there well, is there a is there a standout sort of you know incident failure oh well a near a near epic failure i would suggest would be during that time when i was running the construction company my sister was working this had moved on a few years, about six or seven years later. My father, who was very entrepreneurial, met somebody who met somebody who knew somebody who was selling a logistics business. And basically what happened at that point, my, my dad was quite poorly with cancer. And I, I think he wanted to create a legacy that both my sister and I would have. So I think a legacy for his two, two girls. And so what happened was we basically ended up, he, he said, right, I found this business. I'm going to loan you some money. You, you can have that business and you can go and run that one. And your sister can have this one and she can run that one. And I think in his head, he thought, right, that's it. That's my girl sorted. And that was probably the, the single biggest epic near failure ever within 10 days of taking that business over it was I was it was it was it was literally days away from going into administration we'd we'd taken it over we had clear plan we had a strategy what what we were going to do how I was going to run it where we were going to make cost savings all of these things and within 10 days I'm there. Oh my gosh, what have we done? This is a disaster. Do we close it? And we had 10 staff at the time. They left on a Friday. It was owned by one person. And I rocked up on the Monday and it was owned by somebody else. They didn't have a clue. And they didn't know that you were taking over. No, no. Then literally, and one one person had actually just left his job and moved to that company. So I instantly felt a huge obligation towards these people. 
And yeah, within 10 days, I'm sat with a specialist saying, do we close it? Don't we close it? What do we do? And this is me in my first effectively director role. It was an industry that I knew nothing about. It was a zero industry. It was logistics. Didn't have a clue about it. Literally knew nothing. We'd, we'd had an accountant involved in due diligence and all of this, but they, they completely misrepresented the figures. And that was then probably the the hardest three years of, of my life and my working career, I would say. It was a challenge. So how did it escalate from <laughs> obviously day one to day 10, <laughs> sort of a near death, or, you know, the the business kind of, you know, being on the brink over, day one. you know, and escalate it in that very, you know, in so quickly. What, what, what did you oh. discover that then made you think, actually, this is different to what I expected? At the books. I literally, I, I grasped the books really quickly and... The, the intention was the former director would, um, as part of the purchase, part of the, the, the package, he would stay on for six months and sort of do a transition and a handover. So for the first three days, he continued to come in and sit in the director's office. So there was a director's office on the ground floor and he, he would just walk in and I was sat outside, you know, with the with the team. This went on for three days and I thought, well, that's a bit strange, you know. What do I do? And um, I think on by the fourth day, I think I thought, oh, this, this just isn't going to work. So I think I got going really early and I set myself off in my office. You know, really office. <laughs> no, it's my office. Oh, I was yeah. the owner. <laughs> Whose office is it? I don't know. No one knows. No one knows. I think he thought it was his office, but clearly it was my office. And um, I knew then that he, he wasn't going to be able to deliver any additional value to the, to the business. And I, and I just started getting my head into the accounts. I was sort of crawling over the, the really minute details of information and the main, the main issues for many business and this business at that time, cash flow, profitability, and it, it, it wasn't, it just wasn't, it didn't have the margins. It was a transactional business. And had bad debts. There was all sorts of stuff. I mean, it was just one of those sort of massive learning curves. Everyone talks about a learning curve, but this was by far a learning curve. And at that point, by then, my parents were in their 60s, mid-60s. And it was a case of what do we do? And the decision was made that, well, we've brought it. We're responsible. I'm responsible for these people. So my parents actually remortgaged their house. They'd never had a mortgage in their entire life. And they remortgaged their house. They loaned the money into the business. And basically, I had to get on with it. And I did. And so so I had a lot of responsibility on my shoulders as my first sort of directorship. And um, the next three years... A complete blur if i'm honest if i'm really honest yeah i mean that's some 10 that's some 10 days isn't it oh yeah it, it was definite uh, just shock really um and then 
as I do with most things, it pretty much probably do with everything, is I, I have to gather the facts as quickly as I can. And I just was gathering loads and loads of facts and information and just evaluating huge amounts of data and I suppose trying to evaluate with with no industry background. I had never owned my own company before. Ten staff who were effectively looking to me for some sort of leadership and, and reassurance that everything was going to be okay. And yeah, and that and, and that's what that was the decision that was made. And so we we stuck with it and um I then ran that business for the for the next nine years um, and turned it into something I was very, very proud of at the end of it. Yeah. So what <laughs> so many <laughs> so many questions. Um your you said your accountant did due diligence on those books. Mm-hmm. And then you quickly found out within ten days that actually they were completely like misrepresented. So what had he missed? One of the um again, I think this is probably one of the things when you buy a business that you don't have any industry knowledge of, when you transport freight, you pay duty on imports and exports. And the duty is called deferment. It's like a tax, like a VAT. And basically, and I don't, I mean, I don't think it was the, certainly I don't think it was the fault of the accountant because we, we, I still use the same firm now. I don't, you know, it wasn't their fault. It was the way that the person selling the business had presented the data that if you didn't know about this particular thing, you just wouldn't have, you wouldn't have seen it. It wouldn't have been an obvious thing. So, and it, and that's what it was. It was, it was a particular type of duty that had got sort of mixed up in everything else. So our plan, you know, our business plan, the reason for the purchase, our strategy, how we were going to improve efficiencies, all just went out of the window and it was firefighting. So literally I (laughs) ate, slept, dreamt about it. My husband and I, probably for the first two years, we went in every week, we cleaned the toilets, we cleaned the kitchen. We, we cleaned we cleaned the whole building. It was disgusting. It was a horrible working environment for people. So it was down to the pennies. And then my immediate focus was how do we make more money in the business and how do we get rid of costs? You know, where do we, where can we improve the margins in the business? as well as trying to balance cash flow, manage cash flow, deal with bad debts. We had email fraud. We had people not paying us. So it, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was baptism of fire to be fair. And it sounds like you had lots of presents that, you know, to unwrap there. Um, so it was, a the, that during that 10 days, and you said that you realized uh, at the end of the 10 days, you realized you were kind of in trouble. If that was all to do with cash flow, right? I think it was, gosh, there was a lot of issues. I mean, I think, yes, the, ma- the main issues that, that the business faced was it was not profitable. It had struggled from the crash of 2008 
and it hadn't kept pace with sort of technology it hadn't moved with the time so it had a legacy issue so when I turned up for just one example invoices were still being raised on typewriter they were being posted out in the UK first class and they were being posted overseas it's just one thing that that you know so it, it was it was it was the cash flow massive issue profitability and it wasn't an efficient business, which we knew because that's part of the reason that it was purchased. So, but but product, the big issues were yeah, cash flow and profitability. And it took me, it took me quite a long time to to truly understand the difference between cash flowing in and out of the business. So the speed of that, and I think that's certainly something for anyone running a business it's probably one of the most important things to grasp is your in and out of of your cash coming in and your cash going out and one of the big challenges we had is we had a very large deferment bill which was this sort of VAT taxing uh, on the 15th of the month and if you didn't get your cash in quick enough and no one really wants to pay on time then you you struggle to meet that obligation that obligation was to the revenue and that, that's a really big obligation to have. So there was that. And then the profitability was around the margins on the jobs. And because it, it was a transactional business, you were doing a lot of jobs that were producing low margins. And I mean, again, another example was every single job was processed on an Excel spreadsheet. No software, no tech, no platform. You were, somebody was manually keying in jobs onto spreadsheets, a huge margin for error and incredibly um, labor intensive. So again, not an efficient use for the business. So yeah, they were the, they were the, they were the top line issues and there was lots of other issues, but they were the top line one. Yeah. But I mean, you know, buying any business, right? You, you, you're going to expect some problems that you don't know about. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm presuming that these were a lot more significant than you you thought about. And I don't think the other sort of the follow-up question to that is, did you regret buying the business at the time? I would say no. No, I don't no, I don't think we did actually. I think it was always taken with a view that everything's a learning experience. You know, the decision had been made. I'm definitely I, I I think often in business people second guess themselves and I think potentially they um you know arm and are about a decision or they think possibly that they delay making a decision because they they're hoping something is going to get better, but the fact that they're hoping something is going to get better is is not you know, it, it just isn't. So I think if you if you've done something and you've made a decision, you just have to stick with that decision. So no, we didn't regret it. It was very much a case of right, this is the situation we have. How do we fix it? What steps do we have to take to fix it? What do I need to do to make it right, to make it work, to make it profitable, to protect these 10 staff that they're not on the dole, you know, they're not out of work. It was it was very much like that. And from my own personal perspective, from a 
running businesses, learning, challenging myself, it was probably the best experience I could have in my career, my working life, because I learned so much. So nine years on, you know, I, le I left the business, I exited the business, but during the, during the time of the business, I dealt with lots of different things, lots of really good positive things that were, you know, an amazing experience. And I, I wouldn't change that for the world. No. And, and at the end of it, my you know, family had a debenture on the business for, for the money that they'd loaned in that was paid back. And we were, we were turning over probably maybe 4 million and two directors by then with good salaries, benefits, perks, and a healthy profit. So in my mind, it had been successful. So, yeah. Some, sounds like some turnaround. I mean, the, the you know, you said earlier, you said that was nearly an epic fail. Yes. I mean, what would you call it a failure because you actually, it didn't actually get to the point of failure and you obviously, you managed to turn it around obviously through nine years of hard work, completely changed that business. Would I, would I call it a fail? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously we're going slightly philosophical about what actually def the definition of failure is. I think, I think the failure was probably, aside from the uh, misrepresentation of the figures that were presented to us, I think the failure was maybe on myself and asked for not having done enough due diligence I think and and maybe being a little naive buying a business that we had no industry background in no understanding of really um and you sort of think everyone has the same values as you, you know I think in in your mind you like to think everyone has the same values of you is honesty you know, if somebody says something, it's true, you trust people. You know, you know, in business, there's always going to be a sort of slightly grey line on things. But you don't, I certainly didn't feel, and I know that my late father would have said exactly the same. You know, if, if people give you your word and you shake your hands on it, that's what it is. You know, so I think the failure was all right in, in that we didn't do enough due diligence and, and didn't fully understand or maybe didn't bring in somebody who was a specialist in that industry. I think if I was doing it again, if it was a different industry and I was looking to buy another business, I would, going back to your point about a mentor, in the same way I would I would look to bring in somebody who had experience in that in that field. And that, that would be the failure. But I didn't do that. And you talked about due diligence. What should you have done? I think I think I mean, we'd seen the we'd seen the books, you know, we'd seen the books and stuff. So I think maybe I didn't have the understanding that I have now about the accounts and balance sheets, um, inherited losses. I think I, I I didn't have that depth of knowledge. And one of the first things that I I did, and certainly with my accountant, who um, I've known now for obviously over nine years, twelve years now, I think. I was constantly asking why, what's this? Can you explain this? What does this mean? 
well, why does it show like that? How does it sit on the ledger? What does this nominal mean? Why have we got these assets? I was constantly asking questions. So I think in addition to the first three years, I think every other word that came out of my mouth was either why, what, who, how. I just questioned everything. So that would be what I would do differently. Just a different level of understanding, depth of understanding. If you're buying a business, yeah, you need that. You need that real granular level. But I suppose back to the question I asked earlier if you had known what you'd known when you inherited the business or when you bought the business would you have bought it we would have brought it we would have got it at a cheaper price that's what we would have done yeah because the the business was viable the 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 plans that were in place were viable if we'd known what we were fully walking into so yeah we would have bought it we just would have paid less for it do you think the the previous owner knew what he was hiding and then was trying to kill the fast one i can't answer that can i on a podcast (laughs) (laughs) it would be unethical and unprofessional of me to make comment on that okay well we're really into that what we will (laughs) What was the most difficult point in that in that period? What was the sort of lowest ebb for you? The lowest ebb. Is there a moment that really sticks out that was, you know, that was the sort of the depths? No, because I don't think there was a single point because, you know, when you have sort of sustained stress, and sustained pressure, <laughs> you just chuckled then, um, it, it it's just there all the time and it doesn't go. So there wasn't a low ebb. It wasn't like there was a, a single thing that I had my head in my hands. It was more the constant pressure that I was constantly trying to solve problems I was constantly trying to think on my feet I was always trying to look for creative solutions I was also trying to drive the business forward so I was trying to push through bringing in for example a a software package that would enable the team to transact jobs on it so I was doing training plans I was evaluating um different so- different software pro- providers in the logistics industry I was looking at rebranding the business to to bring it into a modern way so there wasn't an, a low ebb but I would definitely say for the first three years it was constant pressure it, you you didn't leave it in the office it was with me all the time I spent most of my evenings talking about it my weekends discussing it with my well fiance at the time subsequently my husband you literally go to bed and you're dreaming about it so there wasn't a low ebb and and you know making that out very it was it was a difficult time but actually there were some really amazing things that happened within that which sort of I think within about 12 months I'd been approached by a large European logistics company who I'd met at an event and I'd gone out and seen them. And they they obviously saw something in either me or what we were doing and the team. And I brokered um, 
effectively a large in shareholding. They they took a shareholding. They brought cash into the company, and that I, I was dealing with a really big you know, international merger. I suppose they had I think twenty eight offices, nine throughout nine regions throughout Europe. So, you know, so we would we were definitely doing something right. So that was a massive high, and that that enabled us to tap into their sales um, teams. They had a lot of sales team. It was an area that we as a business were weak in. So that was a massive achievement. Um, Still in the, you know, in the, in the challenges, but yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was good. There was loads of highs and I was really lucky. Predominantly I had a fantastic team and we went on and did great things. So yeah, it was it was worth it. Every single day was worth it, definitely. You talked about the the constant pressure and essentially stress just being there, all consuming for well, from what I heard, three years, but it could be mm-hmm. could have been longer. What what did that do to you as a sort of person? What did that do to your the those close to you? Did that have any impact? Um, because you would have had to make a lot of sacrifices. I'm presuming. Yes, I did. I mean, I wasn't in a position to pay myself for some period of time. So I had a fairly new relationship. I'd been previously divorced. I had a fairly new relationship. So um, I, I, I'm assuming we must have been living together or we were certainly quite serious by then. So I think, you know, I was reliant on my fiancé for his job. So we, we went down to sort of one income. Um, and I'd obviously, as you said, you know, previous to that, I'd been working in corporate, so I was on quite a large salary back in you know, back then. So it was a, it, that was quite a big adjustment. So you have you have your own sort of financial situation to deal with aside from the company. Um, again, it, 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 a constant topic of conversation with my family. So if we were there for Sunday dinner, that would always be discussed. So you, you sort of didn't escape it. But I was very lucky because my now husband uh, Phil he. Yeah, he was the one there on his hands and knees cleaning the toilets. We were there, you know, and he cleaned the toilets, you know, he did that. And that's some commitment to you and to the business, right? Yeah, yeah. He wanted it to be a success and he, without doubt, wanted to support me. You know, my my father arranged for the guys to come and decorate. So we had to do the decorating. The office was disgusting. So the guys came in and did that. So, and any repairs we were doing or my dad was up doing you know, so he was in his 60s, well, into his 60s by then. So it took a lot of family commitment as well. You know, my sister was running the the building company then, so that was a transition for her. My aunt was there, so that was also going on. And my dad was having chemotherapy as well. He was quite poorly at the time. So I think, yeah, the, if everyone sees the 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 sort of good bits of running a business or the good bits of a successful business, particularly on social media now, with social media being so prolific, you you get this this sheen, this this gloss of of what it's like. But the reality, and for me personally, I think the reality of of the core of a business is is hard work, it's being resilient. You know, it, we, we, it was all the time. It was constant. We were there all the time, you know, weekends, late nights, constantly. I was having, I was going to conferences to build relationships. 
the way logistics work is that in a lot of businesses, you rely on a partner giving you business. So you can't necessarily control your business. And then you give a reciprocal business to that partner. So relationships were absolutely key. So I was traveling, which again, was something I'd not done significantly and became, you know, fantastic. I loved it in the end. It was, it was an amazing experience. And for me, I could bring that back and I could share that with my dad who'd never traveled, who'd worked, you know, constantly. So I think he enjoyed he the benefit to him was he could share in that experience so when i'd gone to hong kong or vietnam or um you know got into europe i traveled to lots of different destinations for conferences i could bring that experience back um and that yeah that was really nice to share with him so yeah yeah so i mean it sounds like there's a hell of a hell of a lot going on in your family at that time as well which obviously I'm sure added to the pressure right because you obviously had your business your sister's stroke dad's construction business yeah you had him having cancer and having chemo and also having this debenture and and obviously remortgaging their house hanging over everything Mm. did that I mean that did that cause tension I mean did that cause stress and did was there any anxiety about about that weight of of loan and, and financial strain on on the sort of the family and whether it'd work out i think i think earlier i said about once you've made a decision and then you're committed to that decision the 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 decision was made that that my mum and dad would re- take their first mortgage out and that that responsibility sat with me it was it was my responsibility to make that business a success. And I don't think that it didn't weigh on me in the way that I worried about it. And I certainly didn't feel obligated in any way at all, because I think I I can remember my dad saying, you know, as long as you've done your best, you know, that's, that's fine. You know, as as long as you've done your best. So, I I didn't I didn't feel obligated from their perspective I I felt responsible from my perspective and there was just no way that I would not pay that money back and make a success of it it was just it was just not an option to fail I, I could I just couldn't I couldn't do it and I would do everything in my power to to make it a success and so the first three years were obviously very difficult you know it's like this blur I think you know something something quite stressful happens I think you you block out some of the the, the those aspects um but as time went on it became you know became more successful I I mean, in addition to that, in, in 2015, I had been quite poorly and I didn't, I didn't know why at that point. And it, it transpired that I, I had a heart issue. I'd been ill in my 20s and I was subsequently diagnosed with, with heart failure. This was 2015. So four, four years uh, after the business, well, yeah, four, four, five years after sort of running the business. And that was a really big shock. 
uh, I thought, oh, it'd be a little valve. I can swap it out and mm-hmm. just get a valve and it'd be all good. Uh, it was it was obviously something more serious than that. But at the same time, I'd with this European uh, logistics company that had partnered with us, they had a number of European offices and I got introduced to um, a sales guy and I recruited a sales guy. So it's all, all sort of happened at the same time which was which was great for the business you know because I'm I'm not a sales person it's probably one of the only jobs I haven't done and um you know he was able to come into the business and and they it was again like another step in that cycle of moving forward but no I never I never felt under any obligation or pressure from my family I I had immense support and I think I had the belief, my my family believed in me that I could do it and that was that was really all I needed. So, and the support of my husband who, like I said, spent hours listening to me talking about <laughs> it. And cleaning the toilets. And cleaning toilets, bless him. Yeah, he's an amazing person. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, you know, that's back to that tenacity point that we talked about earlier, right? I mean, some other people yeah. would have probably given up you know, at that point, they probably wouldn't have made the decision that you decided as a family to make. And obviously, essentially, you know, what some people may deem a risky decision, you know, to remortgage their house, at, you know, in their 60s. Was, did you see it as a risk? I think we saw it as the right thing to do. You know, I mean, it, it probably was a risk. It, it, it probably was a risk. And at the time, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't know all the all the facets of the industry so we were sort of going into something with will and belief i suppose um rather than loads of uh, black and white knowledge we, we were going into it with the belief that that we could we could fix it improve it and and make it better and yeah it comes back to as you said tenacity resilience uh, responsibility and making decisions and sticking to them. So, yeah, that's uh, that's what we did. Well, I mean, you you know, you certainly <laughs> certainly turned it around, as you as you said. Um. So obviously, you know, you did do what you set out to do. It was probably just a lot harder than you obviously imagined because you thought yeah. the business was in a different position. What were the yeah. kind of key factors in you being, you know, you turning that around? What was the the kind of key drivers to you know, you turning it into the successful business that it was. Blimey, Jeremy, I'd probably have to do another podcast on that. I could probably talk for a couple of hours on that. But, um, I mean, it, it it was already, it had it had lost its competitive advantage in the, in the marketplace because it hadn't kept pace with innovation and technology. So, you know, that, that, was, that was part of it, bringing in the right team to having the right people in the right roles. And supporting them I was looking at the margins so constantly looking at margins I mean I got obsessed with paper the cost of printing and paper you just wouldn't believe how much that costs in a business um you know when one job that you're doing you might have to print 10 10 sheets of paper on an airway bill oh it's just gosh was that because you guys were like not very digital you weren't digital at all a typewriter and a spreadsheet um also, the industry, log- logistics as a whole, again, it, it it was one of those industries that had not 
as a whole, as a collective, was still quite um, process-driven and quite manual processes, you know, airway bills and things like that. It's changed significantly since. And a lot of technologies come in place as an e-airway bill, for example, whereas before you had to do it on paper. There's certain documents you have to have on paper. But so, so there was that, I think, moving the business I think I said earlier about this sort of cyclical nature of business and its evolution and the business, we, we did a big um, international shareholding thing that was fairly quick. And I think I recognized the bits that I could do and the bits that other people could do. And again, bringing in a salesperson later on, again, we went through a restructure of the shareholding and that sort of, that led on to the next phase and ultimately for me exiting the business um when when covid came along i i exited the business and and sold the business to my partner that i'd recruited a, f- a few years earlier so i think it it went through a natural stage and i recognized that i had limitations in the business and that's why i brought in a salesperson so yeah i think that's how i managed to do it but i could I could probably list a thousand and one things. <laughs> They're the things I can think of. But obviously with a lot of hard work and, and, and tenacity underpinning underpinning that as well. But obviously, you know, yeah. I, I suppose what, going back to what we were talking about earlier and your previous kind of experience and broad ranging experience from the corporate background, but then running your own, well, running your father's business, what learnings did you take from that that's then fed into running this business. I think it. I think honestly, it comes down to hard work. I, I think it is. It is just hard work in any business. There are always going to be challenges, without doubt. And if there aren't challenges, you're probably not doing it right. You're probably not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone or hard enough. So, I think it was just hard work and that constant that you have to keep going. You have to keep going. So it, it was, it was, and, and I think also probably one of the other things that I, that I did have to deal with on a more, on a more personal level was that some people find it difficult to change. If if you've got a team of people, they, they don't always find it easy to change and embrace things that are happening. So either a business relationship or a business partnership. And sometimes you just can't, you can't change other people. You just, you just have to deal with the situation you have. So there are a few situations that occurred that, you know, were not easy for me to deal with. And yeah, you you know, you just, you just have to overcome them for for the good, for the good of the business in my mind. Every every decision I made and still continue to make in my current business is is for the best of the business. You know, what's the best decision for the business? How can we improve the business? How can we make the working environment better for the team? You know, how can we be more flexible in our approach? You know, can we do split hours? Can we be flexible on start times and end times? I was very, very much in empowering our team to have the best working environment that they could have. And, and I felt that that was a really good thing to have because if you have a really good working environment and everyone's happy, 
happy staff, happy employees. You know, it's just better. It's a better working relationship all around. So probably that really is the thing. Yeah. But, I mean, that sounds, you've probably got that from, well, I, I'm guessing there's been some influence on BA, right? You're talking about them being quite forward thinking with their staff, having an amazing environment. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, funny enough, I was just, we, my husband and I were just talking prior to this and he was actually talking about his, uh, he, he did an apprenticeship and we were talking about uh, different working styles actually and he said that he worked for BAE and he said, oh, thinking about it now, they were really ahead of their time and BA, again, obviously another aviation industry, BA were, were way ahead of their time, I felt, looking, looking back now. I mean, we did... I've seen a lot of people recently talking about insights, you know, profiling. Um, I don't know if you use this in your business, but profiling people so you can look at people's backgrounds and skill sets and how they work for recruitment. Yeah. Um, and BA were doing that back then. And I can remember doing um, an insights evaluation as to, um, you know, I said how I deal with things. And I was a, a cool, reflective thinker. That was my sort of base star I think it was borderline blue yes as I was cool reflective thinker so yeah so I think I've always taken that forward I'm not one for big emotions um I I, I keep things quite inward I think I think I'm consistent so I, I think sometimes people find that quite difficult to deal with in business relationships because they want to elicit a reaction that they feel comfortable with um and yeah and i've and i've i've had instances i had an instance where i had a, a guy uh basically i picked them up on something that they they weren't doing correctly uh, which had a health and safety implication and they what i can only describe as this was an older guy uh, as a tantrum, a tantrum, and and swore at me, just all being effing something or other, and and stomped out of the building. Yeah. yeah. So and I've I've had situations like that, but because I don't react, you know, I just like sort of keep it in. I think it makes it harder for them because they're not used to a, a, a woman not being outwardly emotional so I think that's one of the things that people sometimes or certain few individuals had found difficult when dealing with me is that I just I don't they can't elicit the response that they want out of me when they're themselves possibly in my face shouting at me mm -hmm. towering over me shouting you know telling me to do something slamming their hand on the desk calling me a, a witch you know so yeah so I've I've had lots of different things to deal with but that's just life. That's how it goes. <laughs> it's just um, I like the way you just sort of you know flipping about about it. Um, I'm intrigued. What happened to the pre pre? If you can talk about it, previous owner that um that came in and it was sorry he he stayed there as a director and then you obviously you swapped offices. What ended up? He 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 just left. He was quite a lot older. I think he you know to be fair, I think he retired. Um, I, I think he, he you know he'd. It, obviously, we had the 2008 crash, which you know significantly affected a lot of businesses, not just freight, but, but you know all businesses. And I think it 
I think it was just one of those things that he'd got to the end of his career. Um, I've been, I've been on a mastermind and one of the guys on the, the mastermind property mastermind, he, he sells, helps people sell their businesses. And one of the things he talked about was that there's like a switch in somebody's mind and they've, they've sort of got to the point where they're going to exit their business. And, um, I think he had just got that, got to that point. He didn't have this, you know, he'd built a successful business up to many years before and then 2008 came and I think that creativity that you, that sometimes you need just just wasn't there and I think he, he struggled and I think he you know he just thought I'm going to retire and when you you just reference British Airways you know going going back I think because I'd done lots of different jobs I'd I you know I traced lost luggage I uh, said so one of my jobs was I would deal with angry people when they turned up from, you know, tired from their holiday and their baggage wasn't there, that was me. I was the person there dealing with it. Yeah, so I did that. I, I dealt with I dealt with a lot of flight crews. So I was rostering flight schedules all manually by hand. So I'd done lots of different jobs. I'd worked small startups. I'd worked with large banks dealing with their projects. So I've done lots of different, lots and lots of different things. And I think the ability... And the learnings from all of those different things just sort of came to a head and I could just pull on different aspects of my career and the training that I'd had and the jobs that I'd had. Like I said, the only job that I've never done and I don't consider myself to be is a, is a salesperson. I, I, I don't have that fluffiness. But did he stay on? Because you said he was meant to stay on for six months. Did he stay on? No, uh... no. I, I told him he'd have to go. Because it wasn't going to work, so he he went fairly quickly. I think by the end of the first week. Oh wow, that that soon. Yes, yes, yeah. I I just knew it wasn't going to work, and I and I didn't think there was anything that he could add value to. And I felt he'd, I felt he'd mis potentially misrepresented things. So, didn't meet my honesty box. Didn't tick the honesty criteria. Yeah. I still want to kind of go back to that first week or that first 10 days you essentially come in you've got a wrong you've got a book a set of books which is being misrepresented you've bought a business with the pressure of of the expectation i suppose of your family you've the staff didn't know about you coming in to that business on the first day you've got you've basically got rid of the director that was meant to be with you for six months and at the end of it you'll kind of realize that you're running out of cash and then you've also had to take a, uh, a a fairly risky decision with your family to then remortgage their house to cash flow and bankroll the business. I I'm just you know how how did that feel? How did you get through that amount of pressure and you know fire? Because that is a furnace of you know significant intensity. That that is, and when you say it like that, Jeremy, I. I just really wonder if it actually happened to somebody else because you just listed it all out and I'm thinking, yeah, that, that is probably a really good summation of what happened. Um, how did I feel? Determined. That would be the best word, determined. Determined not to fail. That, that I mean, it's, it's really hard to pick 
one word and it, you know like i said earlier it's it's you know when something big happens in your life it doesn't matter what it is but when something big happens in your life i think your brain has a way of sort of fading it slightly and I, and i think it's probably faded some of the feelings around that as i said i'm quite a logical practical structured person so I would imagine that kicked in, but yeah, I was determined, determined to, to do my very best. Are you scared of failure? Am I scared of failure? Yes. Yes. And I think in some respects, it makes me maybe less entrepreneurial. And I think it doesn't make me more cautious because I will take risks, but I like to have facts and information. So my, I'm not as, I think I, yeah, I think I like to have facts and information. And then once I feel comfortable, then I'm totally, totally 100% committed. That's the decision. That's what I'm doing. This is what's going to happen. And this is how it's going to be. But yeah, I would say, yeah, I would say that I, I, it would not sit comfortably with me if I, if I failed, if, if, if I failed. If that business hadn't worked. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I just would never have sat comfortably. Because I think there's, there's definitely a different, sometimes there's a different approach that some people take to business, right? Which is if they feel it's not going to work, they they may cut their losses and sort of just chalk it up as a as a potential failure and then move on to to something else but that it doesn't seem to ever cross your mind no no that doesn't cross my mind i i mean i'm i think i i think i have difficulty with people who who misrepresent themselves and claim to be something they're not. So for me, I think integrity, you, you, your personal integrity, aside from your business, but your, your personal integrity is very, very important. And I, you know, I know there are companies that, that have, you know, let's say multiple, multiple companies set up with, with one director or different directors or same people in team. And that company's, you know, one of the companies has gone bust, let's say, I mean, a large amount of money, but they're continuing to portray themselves as something that they're not. And I, I, I didn't be able to do that. And, and I, I'm, I, I, I'm for, I don't have any time for people that do do that in business. I think, and I also think, I mean, obviously we're talking about a particular time in my life and, and now I'm running a property business and I think property has a bit of a bad reputation I think you know a bit like car salesmen years ago that were always in trouble for selling dodgy cars I think there's a lot of unscrupulous people potentially and property's always had a bit of that reputation you see some of the things with landlords the quality of properties standards in properties and you and you think well no wonder landlords everyone you know doesn't like landlords because they think they're taking advantage and they they they've got horrible properties full of mold 
So I think it's really important and I and I know as well from your from yourself and your own company, it's about creating standards that everyone can be proud of. And I think and I believe that integrity is an important standard, irrespective of what business you're doing or what you're doing in your in your in your whole life. You know, you you've you've got to have a set of values that you that you that you stick by. So yeah. Okay. What did you learn about yourself during those difficult moments during that, you know, nine year or particularly that first three years that you, you said was a blur? What, yeah. What did you learn about, about you in particular? Um, should I learn about myself? I'm probably, I'm probably more creative than I thought I was, um, yeah, I would say I was probably, yeah, I was probably more creative. I think I'm, and like I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a project manager by trade, if you like, by background. I, I print too qualified. I've got my APM. I'm very logical, methodical, very black and white. I like data. But I think I, I became a lot more creative and I, I was able to find creative solutions to problems that, you know, when you're sat there thinking, gosh, you know, you're at your desk, you're in your office, my office now. And I'm like, okay, we got this problem. What are we going to do? I, I think you can just pluck solutions out of your brain. So I was always finding solutions to things. And I, and I think, yeah, I think I was more creative. So I probably, I probably have that in me. I think it's just not one of my, um, you know, when you list out what your your sort of core skills are, or what your you know what, how you think you perceive yourself, I wouldn't put creative creativity really high up there. But I think it is there. It just needs really complex situations to bring it to the fore. So yeah, probably more creative than I thought. It needs a good crisis to to bring it yeah to bring it out. Absolutely, everyone loves a good crisis. <laughs> and on that, I mean, in those kind of crisis moments those the cauldron that you kind of faced during that period how do you stay positive how do you how do you maintain that that belief that you talked about how do you maintain it or how do you yeah how, how have you maintained it then or even now when things are difficult because you have got that resilience and you know we've talked a lot tenacity's come up a lot today i, I would definitely call you very resilient but, you know, how do you sort of maintain that when it really gets difficult? Um, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's tricky. Um, I, so when I was 20, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, so cancer, basically. Um, and I was, I was stood in my friend's kitchen actually at the time. And I, I put my hand to my neck and I felt this lump on my neck. And, um, my friend's mum said to me, oh, you, you need to go and get that checked. You know, can't be anything serious. You know, I'm 20 years old. Anyway, it was, it was quite serious. And, um, so I was 20 years old. I was had been diagnosed with cancer and then I spent the next 
two years of my life, um, basically in and out of hospital, being very ill, having chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And my friends were off traveling around Australia and, and I was really, really ill. So I think when you have something like that happen to you, or you have a major, major issue come up in your life, particularly around health, but it can be other things, you find an inner, I don't know, an inner core, um, or, or maybe, yeah, an, an inner strength. And, and loads of people say, I don't know how you dealt with that, or I, oh, that guy, I'd never be able to cope with that if that happened to me. But the reality, the reality is that you, that you would, and that, you know, humans and people are incredibly strong and incredibly resilient and can overcome real extremes of difficulty and that, and that could be health but it could be business it, it doesn't really matter but I think within everybody there is a, a core and I I just happened to have a core that got tested when I was 20 and I think it's one of those things that that gives me a, a belief that if you can overcome that you can overcome anything wow and then obviously that's when you're facing those that list of problems that I probably mentioned that probably seemed like small fry to you compared to that I think it was it was very different I mean I was obviously a lot older by then um you know so I was how old was I then 40 I think it was 41 by then I had a marriage breakdown by then as well just prior to that I'd been married for 20 years and, and my marriage had broken down so it, it was just a different test. I think having been ill in my 20s, I think that sort of comes into, and I said earlier, when I'm not very emotional. I mean, I probably could get emotional speaking to you about it and, and speaking about my father as well. But I think that can come across as me being unemotional you know but I I think it, it comes from just that you know when, you, when you've gone through something like that other things don't seem to impact you in the same way that you can become have maybe a stronger outer shell really I, I suppose that's how it is I, I've got a, I've got a slightly a bit of a tougher outer shell and and the people that really know me well, you know, my my family, my really close friends, the people that, um, you know, people that that trust me, invest with us, that work with us, and people that know me, yourself included in that, you know, you know, you know me quite well, um, know that actually at the heart is is a really big softy, but not many people see that. So, yeah, I hide that. Yeah, I hide that quite a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, so no, managed to managed to. I would definitely agree with that. I mean, you've been a huge support to, to me over the last few years. So, yeah, thank you for, for that. And I think thank that you. just comes from a place of kindness as well. Uh, while we were talking about inner strength, I, I, I had a thought, actually, and it reminds me of, obviously, it's a very 
different uh, situations, but it might, reminds me of the book um, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and he talks a lot about about inner strength in that and what humans can overcome. And obviously, that's you know obviously all about the sort of Holocaust and his account of that. And um, you know that's a, an amazing kind of book about the human spirit. Mm. So I highly recommend that to anyone uh, who hasn't read that. Yeah. So just kind of wrapping up now, um, you talked earlier about that actually you're scared of failure. So given that, what advice would you give to new entrepreneurs about how to handle a fear of failure? Um, I, oh gosh, what advice would I give? That's, that's tricky. I think probably... Yeah, fear of failure does stop a lot of people trying something new, which is which is completely understandable. So, I think if you're if you're thinking of going into you know, setting up a business or particularly going into a property property business, which is obviously my current business, a plan plan for it, put plans in place, and 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 educate yourself and research and if you can if you can minimize the risk to yourself or your or to your family if you, if you want to invest in property then start doing excuse me start doing that while you've got a job you know while you're you're working in your everyday job so you can de-risk what you're doing so i would say yeah you know start start small gather lots of information assess that information and then and then work out a plan that you feel comfortable with whether that's a financial investment or whether that's you know doing one property or one property near you or using a, a company for education or mentorship or sourcing you know like, like yourselves um and don't second guess yourself Oh, well, there's been a lots of. Th- I've, I've was on a webinar a while ago, and they were talking about this this, this imposter syndrome. And I was thinking, well, I don't know what they're talking about. I'm really confused. I'd never heard the term. I felt I felt really old. That was the first thing. I think, oh my gosh, I'm really out of touch. But yes, yeah, so don't don't second guess yourself. Work out a plan, commit, and f- as long as you feel comfortable, I think I think I've spoken a lot about figures facts black and white data and things like that but ultimately the gut feel if you've got a gut feel that you're doing the right thing and it's right for you then don't second guess yourself and go for it because invariably it will be the right thing and you and you won't fail because your gut is telling you yeah this this feels good feels feels like i'm going to succeed so yeah don't be put off by the fear of failing (laughs) And when you said second guess yourself, what what do you what do you mean? Um, I think often in businesses, directors or you know they business owners or sole traders, they I think they um, worry about making difficult decisions. It's difficult decisions. They just a normal business. You've got downturn in your turnover you've got heavy staff overhead you know a salary is obviously a big cost to any business you talk about the wages but you've got pension contributions ni etc so often if businesses have to look at their costs they they tend to have to look at their salary costs and that means people 
And nobody wants to get rid of any of their team because they're part of the family. So it's a difficult decision. And I think one of the one of the challenges that, that business owners face is they know there's something wrong, but they don't want to make that really difficult decision. You know, they don't want to let somebody go. They don't want to make them redundant. But you, in your gut, you know it's the right decision. You, you know that you have to do it. So that's what I mean about don't second guess yourself. You know what the right decision is. However unpalatable that is, you are having to make a decision for the good of the business and that might be having to get rid of a staff member and don't second guess yourself. You're there to, to be the leader, to make the difficult decisions and to commit. And that's what I mean about don't second guess yourself. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good advice. And on a sort of related note, for anyone out there who's had a, a significant setback in their business, what advice would you give to them? Consolidate your position and move forward. Really, that would be would be my advice. Stop. Work out where you are. Gather all your information. Work out where you want to get to. Hunker down and and just go for it and move forward with purpose, with effort and with with focus and drive. And you and you will succeed. You will succeed. Right. That's what I would say. So last question um, is what we always end on. So if you could go back in time to that moment of failure or potentially saving from a greater failure, would you erase that from happening? No. Why? No. <laughs> Why? Because probably one of the best experiences of my life running that business, fixing it, improving it. Oh, fantastic time, fantastic experience, bringing in my business partner and moving on to do something else. It, it, without doubt, would not change a single thing. Wow. Pretty category answer. <laughs> yeah. So I've just got a final quick fire round. So this is sh oh, um, short questions and short kind of, you know, answers. I'll do my best. Answers. I'm, I'm sort of overheating. Not a, not a quiz. <laughs> um, so failure is? Success. What is your life's mission? To be happy. What's one piece of advice that you would want to give on your deathbed? Life's too short. Make the most of it. What's one habit that keeps you resilient? <laughs> Eating chocolate. <laughs> Can you go with that one or have I got to do another one? If you want to go, it's that entirely up to your answer. If you want to go with chocolate as your main resilience, I mean, we've talked a lot about resilience today. What surprise chocolate's got you through? Uh, what's the one main habit? Uh, writing things down. A good note note taking. I I write notes on everything. Good 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 note taking, which came from my pushy boss who used to <laughs> used to mark my work out of ten. Oh, we got something out of him. Um, yeah, definitely. 
If you could be immortal, would you take it? No. Why? Is that a why? Is that a follow-up? Yeah, it's a follow-up, yeah. It's a follow-up. Um, because I think you should cram as much as you can into the life that you've got and make your one life count. What's one surprising fact that not many people know about you? I ran the London Marathon. Great. Um, another, you know, example of you being resilient and, ten and tenacious. So last question, who can you recommend as a guest that you think would be great on this podcast? Oh, gosh. I would recommend Mark Stokes from Equa Academy. Okay. Perfect. Um, so... Rachel, thank you so much. Where can people um, find you and connect with you? Um, I'm on all the social media platforms, as you would expect. So my business is Flex Homes. Um, my preferred platform is probably LinkedIn, and that's Rachel Wellbelove. No D on the end, just an E. So LinkedIn and um, just send me a DM through there or any of the social platforms or my email, we, you can add that, I'm sure, to the notes or something. You can add that to the show notes after. Yep, perfect. Add all of those um, links to all of your channels in the show notes. So thanks so much for being here. It's been a pleasure um, to have you on. Obviously, been some difficult things we've discussed, so I really appreciate your, your honesty on that. And, um, yeah, we could have gone on for another few hours. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Nice well, no, thank you for inviting me, Jeremy. Um, like you said, we've you know been involved quite some time various things and um yeah i was honored to be invited so i'm just starting to get a bit hot because it's only 35 degrees here and i haven't got the aircon on but um, well, i'll yeah, let you so. go that seems a good way to uh to end that you need to get your aircon on so <laughs> i do so much thanks very much All thank right. you thanks